Welcome to the Byline Times podcast, the Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg and this week we've got an exclusive with Nazir Afzal, the former Chief Crown Prosecutor for North West England, whose tenacity helped secure convictions for paedophile grooming gangs in Rochdale. Now he has the government in his sights. He's setting up a crowdfunder to hold ministers to account for their failures during the pandemic. We came out of the first lockdown too early when uh, figures were still suggesting that we were in trouble. Then remember what uh, we did in August? Yes, we all ate out to help out. All we did was actually increase the number of people being infected. Plus the war on journalism. Growing numbers of investigative reporters are finding their access to information blocked by the government on stories as diverse as contaminated blood supplies to the cladding on tower blocks post-Grenfell. This is not a nerdy or wonky subject. It's, It's a story of life and death. All that to come. First, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times can afford to tell it like it is because we're funded by people like you, our listeners and readers. There's no media tycoon pulling our strings and we don't accept corporate advertising. If you believe in what we're doing, please consider subscribing to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. It costs just £36 a year. You find more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription, well, thank you. Now, Nazir Afsal has been a distinguished public servant. As Chief Crown Prosecutor for North West England, he famously persisted where others had failed and brought to justice a group of men who had groomed, abused and trafficked children in Rochdale. Now he wants to pursue the government for what he regards as their mishandling of coronavirus. And he's setting up a crowd justice campaign to scrutinise ministers' decisions since the start of the pandemic. There's no point waiting for a public inquiry, he says. Far better to identify what's gone wrong now so that similar mistakes can be avoided whilst the virus is still spreading. Nazir started our conversation by giving me a powerful personal account of how his own family has been affected by COVID-19. My brother, uh, my eldest brother, um, who was 71 and in good health, caught the disease, visiting my mother who had pneumonia at the beginning of March of last year. Uh, That's what we think anyway, we don't know where, but we 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 assume that's where he caught it because there were other people in the hospital that were already coming down with COVID. And he got really ill. He was thought he was getting better. The hospital didn't want him. They said, no, no, self-isolated home. He's breathing and other issues arose again. On the 1st of April, he went into A&E in Birmingham and they did a test, a COVID test. People forget that on the 12th of March of last year, the government stopped community testing because there weren't enough tests. The only way you could get a test was if you were seriously ill in the hospital. So he managed to get a test on the 1st of April. I spoke to him around about that time and he wasn't well, but he thought, you know, he thought he'd be okay. On the 8th of April, which is the day when at that time most people have died in the first wave, 1,455 people died. He died at home. He was found by his wife first thing in the morning, having died overnight. I was in Manchester. I knew that lockdown enabled me to travel for these exceptional circumstances. And I went down to find him in the bed, the undertaker said that he couldn't come for another eight hours because he had so many bodies to pick up. I think he had 14 other bodies to pick up that day. So we remained with him during that period. When the undertaker finally did come, he said, I can't 
come into the house, you need to bring him down. Here's a body bag. And so we put him in a body bag and brought him down the stairs. Me and my brothers brought him down the stairs. We placed him on the um, trolley. My mother, who at that time had now come out of hospital, but uh, was still on an oxygen tank, wanted one last look at her son. And through the bay window, we opened the body bag so she could see his face. And then he was placed in the undertaker's van and ultimately in the mortuary at the mosque. The mosque had built freezers, industrial freezers, because of the number of people that they were dealing with. Fortunately, my brother wasn't put in one of those, but he was certainly put in the mortuary. And then he had to remain there for nine days, six days, because we couldn't get a coroner's certificate. The coroner's office said they had a backlog of 300 deaths to deal with. Because he died at home, he needed a coroner's death certificate to bury him. Then we found there were only 30-minute slots available at the graveyard. Three days later, I couldn't come to the funeral. There were only six people allowed at the funeral. My family were told that the people who do attend need to be able to lower him into the grave. So my mother couldn't attend either. So my brothers and able members of the family did that. And after 29 minutes and 59 seconds, they were told to leave uh, because the next family were coming to bury their own. None of us had the opportunity to mourn. None of us could have prepared ourselves for what we had to deal with. I have no doubt in my mind that it broke my mother's heart. She had one prayer all her life, and that was that she would pass away before any of her children did. And two and a half months or three months after my brother's death, my mother died. Again, we had similar issues of being able to deal with her death. She, she didn't die from COVID, but nonetheless, as a family, we've not been able to mourn. As a family, we've not even begun to grieve. As a family, we've not even begun to reflect upon the loss that we've suffered. My brother was a Home Office interpreter for 30-odd years. He helped so many people. Uh, Adrian, it was extraordinary, actually, that the number of outpouring of, of support and love for him after his death. I got so many emails from people saying, if it wasn't for him interpreting for me at this police station or in this Home Office interview, something terrible would have happened to me. And he helped so many people. And they were there. And it's a shame that I didn't even know half of this until he passed away. But he was healthier than me. And and, and then just before, just after Christmas, I and my family caught COVID here in Manchester. And of course, we were terribly worried that we maybe there's some kind of genetic reason why he passed away. And thankfully, we struggled, but we got through it. And five weeks later, we've now recovered, although the tiredness is there. And people just don't understand how bad COVID is. It is not a flu. It's nothing like the flu for two weeks. I literally couldn't do anything. Um, the coughing was so bad that I felt I, I broke a rib, probably or fractured a rib, the amount of coughing I was doing, and the fever and everything else that goes with it. And the exhaustion is beyond anything. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that after doing this podcast, I'll have to lie down for an hour, even six weeks afterwards. That's how bad COVID is. Those of us who've been through it and I've, you know, the families that have lost people understand it. My concern is that many people just do not understand what we're dealing with. These are really harrowing personal details, Nazir, and I'm grateful to you for sharing them with us. But beyond the personal grief that you have suffered, you believe there's a bigger story here, and you've instructed your lawyers to investigate whether charges could be laid against the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. On what grounds? I have form for this because uh, I also took offence at uh, what happened to Dominic Cummings and I instructed lawyers in relation to that. And as a result of our inquiries, we presented a 225-page evidence and witness statements to Durham police who, have now re- who are now reinvestigating. So it struck me that there's a role here to get to the truth. I think it was 
Jesus in the book of John that said, the truth will set you free. And what I've picked up over the last few months, talking to the bereaved families of, of other COVID victims, is that their concern is that this harm that they've suffered and that others are suffering could have been avoided. And we heard last week when we reached 100,000 100, UK citizens having died from COVID, the Prime Minister said he takes full responsibility, but full responsibility is meaningless without accountability. And these deaths, just 25,000, for example, of the, of the deaths since Christmas could have all been avoided if the Prime Minister had listened to the science and followed the science he was told in the middle of December. We know that there will be more, the de more deaths. It's important for me and, and important for the public more widely uh, to understand what will happen. And, you know, there will be a public inquiry, but that, you know, I've dealt with several public inquiries in my career. That will be several years down the line. You know, what people want now is to understand what went wrong. And from my perspective, it's about exploring the evidence, getting the best legal advice on, on remedies, examining what happened, pressing the government for the information, explanations and actions that they've taken. Some of them are already out in the public domain, but there are others that we will not know of. And then following the evidence and seeing where it takes us. And, you know, you mentioned uh, prosecution. That, to my mind, is way down the road. What I want to do first is understand the failures that contribute to the deaths of so many. If the evidence takes us down the legal route, then yeah, absolutely, that's where we will go. But it's not, it's not the be-all and end-all. I don't want it to be seen as Nazir Avzal wants to take down the Prime Minister. That's not what we're about. It's about rebuilding public confidence. You know, there are thousands of people who've died, tens of thousands of people who've died. This pandemic remains out of control, and there were decisions taken by government that have devastated families, communities, and the country. How many times has the Prime Minister said, well, look at what's happening around the world. It's too early to compare. You know, we are, if not the worst, one of the worst performing countries in the world and governments in the world. And I often paint the picture of Japan, which is twice our size population-wise, and is only 800 miles away from where it all started, whereas we're, what, 5,000 miles away. And yet they've only had, only is not a terrible word, but six, five, 6,000 deaths. And we've had 20 times plus, and we're carrying on dying. It, something has terribly gone wrong. And if, the, if it amounts to something that requires legal action? Well, absolutely. But as I said, the first thing for me is to understand, examine the legal basis for the investigation, ultimately to attach responsibility, because the people who are making decisions and made those decisions that led us to where we are today are still making those decisions. What I would want now is independent scrutiny now, not years down the line. Can you give me any examples that you would point to of failures by Boris Johnson or failures in government to act sooner than they ought to have done? Oh, God, there are so many. I mean, I mentioned earlier on the 12th of March 2020 will be a day that we will regret. It was a day when the government decided that they weren't prepared, that they didn't have enough tests, and they decided to stop community testing which meant that nobody knew in the community whether they had a disease. And so the instructions we had that time was wash your hands. And so more and more people were becoming infected, including my brother. And that's led in large part to the first wave. You then had the World Health Organization with only three words, test, test, test. And we weren't doing that. And then what about stopping the, the disease coming to our island nation? Countries around the world, Australia, New Zealand, and others, put in place really strict border controls, which we didn't. 
and that enabled people to come in. And we heard only recently the Home Secretary said that she was arguing for strict border controls but was overruled by the Cabinet stroke Prime Minister. Uh, so we didn't do that. The communication from the Prime Minister was poor. It didn't give people the information they needed. As a result, people decided to break lockdown. They didn't take it as seriously as they could have done. Some people did. And then we, we came out of the first lockdown too early when uh, figures were still suggesting that we were in trouble. Then, remember what uh, we did in August? Yes, we all ate out to help out. All we did was actually increase the number of people being infected. And then we were told, SAGE, which is the government's scientific body, was telling them, back in September, you need to go back into lockdown. People should not go back to school. All manner of decisions were taken. Uh, well, information from scientists and experts was being ignored by our, our government and by our Prime Minister. And we are where we are. Nazir, you've had this terrible loss in your own family. You've also spoken in the Byline Times about how you were overlooked for the role of the independent reviewer of the government's prevent strategy in a story which suggests that William Shawcross, who got the job, was the government's preferred appointee all along. People hearing this might think, well, you've got a grudge against the government because they've overlooked you professionally and because you're understandably grief-stricken about the loss of your brother. This is not personal. This is what the public want. You know, I've spoken to 100,000 uh, representatives of 100,000 bereaved families. There are so many groups now on Facebook and other places, and I've spoken to them or listened to them and I've heard them or read them, and they are as angry, but perhaps more importantly, they're confused. They're confused at what has happened, which led to the deaths of their loved ones. You know, I've, there have been lots of opportunities which I've applied for which I didn't get. You mentioned the prevent role. The reason why I, I, I'm concerned about that is the Telegraph newspaper, a week before I was about to be interviewed by ministers, said that William Shawcross was the government minister's favoured candidate. Well, what kind of selection process is that when the government or the ministers have already made it clear to the Telegraph a week before uh, who they want? But the other day, I, I, that's by the by. I, I, when, I, when I brought the carry out the investigation of Dominic Cummings, none of this stuff had happened then, or my brother's loss of my brother had, but this stuff hadn't happened then. I have built my career on seeking the truth, and people value what I've done because I've, that's what I've done. I feel very privileged that victims in all manner of spheres have shared their stories with me, and it would be, I think, what would be wrong if, if I didn't do anything based on what I've heard and what, I, what people have asked me to do. Many people just feel bewildered and powerless. And you know, Adrian, I keep saying this over and over again, the biggest division in our society isn't between leave and remain or black and white and north and south, men and women. It's between the powerful and the powerless. The people with power seem to be able to act with impunity. They seem to be able to do what they want without consequence or without even an investigation. Uh, and the powerless, which is pretty much the bulk of us in this country, just have to go along with it. Well, that time has to change because right now, Adrian, Trust in politics, trust in government, trust in institutions is probably the lowest it's been in my lifetime and if not many others' lifetimes. Uh, and we've got to rebuild trust and we rebuild trust by seeking the truth. Nazir Afzal. And as I mentioned, Nazir is setting up a crowd justice campaign to help his legal team scrutinise documents and explore possible legal avenues for those who feel they've been let down by the government over coronavirus. 
You can find details of the Crowd Justice campaign on our Byline Times podcast page. There's plenty of great reading about COVID-19 as well on the Byline Times website from the likes of Otto English and Jonathan Liss. My name's Adrian Goldberg and just a reminder that the Byline Times is funded by the generosity of people like you, our subscribers. For just £36 a year, you can get our wonderful monthly paper, The Byline Times, and your subscription also pays for our website, Byline TV, and this podcast. Thank you if you have already subscribed. You can get more details on subscriptions at bylinetimes.com. Now, is there a war on journalism? Mary Fitzgerald is the editor-in-chief of the global news website Open Democracy Thinks So. She wrote recently that Boris Johnson and his government are attacking press freedom. We must not let them win. Mary has now launched a campaign seeking to save and strengthen freedom of information laws. She's also challenging a secretive unit inside Michael Gove's cabinet office that has been accused of blacklisting journalists and blocking the release of sensitive information. We'll hear from Mary shortly, but first to get a sense of why this really matters, just have a listen to Jason Evans, who became an investigative journalist almost by default after failing to get satisfactory answers about the death of his father, Jonathan. Jonathan was one of more than 1,200 haemophiliacs who've lost their lives after being treated with blood products known as factor concentrates, which were introduced to the UK in the 70s and 80s, but which were sometimes contaminated with hepatitis C and HIV. A public inquiry into the scandal was launched in 2018 and is expected to publish its final report next year. Jason is the founder of Factor 8, the independent haemophilia group. As you'll hear, his efforts to establish the truth have been frequently obstructed. But first I asked him what he remembered about his dad. Well, I certainly don't remember a lot firsthand. I was four years old when my father died in 1993. He was born with the blood disorder haemophilia and like thousands of other people in this country during the 70s and 80s when these new factor concentrate treatments came out, he, like many others, was infected with both hepatitis C and HIV and he died as a result of those infections. And, you know, being four years old, I didn't remember a lot. I remember certainly the funeral directors. I remember the day of his funeral. I remember the last time I saw him alive, which was just a few weeks after my fourth birthday, and he was effectively on his deathbed at his parents' house at at that point. And I, you know, I had no understanding really of the seriousness of what was happening. You know, I, I knew it was bad, but I I didn't fully appreciate the seriousness of of what was going on you know at that time i was certainly fortunate enough that in the the four years of my life that my father was alive he did take a lot of home videos which fortunately my mother kept and i still have to this day to look back on many many you know hours of video so what i may not personally have remembered i do still have you know, those captured video memories to look back on. And at the heart of the scandal which killed your father was the fact that the NHS ignored warnings and continued to import blood 
infected with hepatitis and HIV. And that's what sadly killed your father. Yeah, I mean, I, I do try to be very careful with this, particularly with something that involves the NHS. But I, I don't think, you know, people in our community are seeking to to point the finger at the, the NHS, which obviously is, you know, a loved and highly regarded British institution. The the failings are are found higher up the the chain and unfortunately within the civil service, within government, within the monetary interest of the pharmaceutical industry is where, you know, the documents we've seen, the evidence that's coming out now through the inquiry, this really is where the fault lies. Now, there has been evidence that's been coming out through the inquiry to suggest that some clinicians, senior clinicians, have also made some very questionable choices and decisions which which the inquiry is investigating. But we have always, you know, long been conscious as a campaign to not attack the NHS as an institution. I think it's important we we don't do that. At the end of the day, we we all need the NHS. When did you first start investigating the roots of your father's death? It was in 2015 when I first started to look into this properly. And the trigger for that was in Scotland, they'd held an inquiry called the Penrose Inquiry. It had begun some years prior, probably seven or eight years prior, I think. And um, it reported in March of 2015. And I, I remember that day very well. I'd booked the day off work. I was sat there and I thought, this is going to be the day today where I finally get some answers about why my father's dead, how it happened and who's responsible. That never happened. The report was not delivered by the chairman, Lord Penrose. He never even showed up to present his own report. Obviously, the inquiry, that Penrose inquiry, despite the hopes, was somewhat flawed from the outset, given that it was refined to Scotland. It was refined to a very limited amount of issues. It wasn't within the terms of reference to hold people accountable, to find fault, to investigate cover-up and all the things that this UK-wide inquiry that's currently going on is doing. So the end result of that, you know, coming back to my involvement was when that happened, I thought, I felt at least that no one is going to give me the answers. And so I'm going to have to somehow go and get them for, for myself. And what has that process been like for you? A big learning curve. It certainly took me to places I would never have imagined it would. You know, when I started out, it was very much Google online archives ultimately you know just a few years later it would mean me you know numerous times at this point being sat in cabinet office with ministers and in various parliamentary meeting rooms and meetings with tv production companies and you know arguing with pharmaceutical company representatives and getting threatened by Revlon's lead barrister in New York. So it's been a pretty wild experience. I certainly had no understanding of 
quite what I was getting myself in for, I don't think. Using freedom of information, what facts have you discovered or established which you believe go close to explaining what happened to your dad and the many other victims like him? So since 2015, I've certainly spent countless hours going through this material, the paperwork. And to put it briefly, I think what it shows is that it was known these products, these factor eight concentrate products that infected people with hepatitis C and HIV, it was known before they ever hit the market that they were dangerous. They went on the market anyway, largely because of the commercial incentive, because the previous treatment was, it was called cryoprecipitate. And it's, it's akin to, the easiest way to think about that for some, to somebody is like a blood transfusion. You can't sell, in this country at least, blood. It's given freely through the NHS and distributed through the NHS. That was what cryoprecipitate was. With factor concentrates, this was a bottled pharmaceutical drug that was sold for cash. So we've seen through the documents how the field of haemophilia treatment changed from this goodwill donation atmosphere into a for-profit business, which explains why, despite the products knowingly being dangerous, were put out there. As the years went on, the harm they were doing became more and more and more evident until it just couldn't be stopped. And I think really the pinnacle of that was when you, you get to sort of the 1983 to 1985 era, when 30 plus percent of the haemophiliacs in this country are infected, not just now with hepatitis C, but also with HIV. And then people start dying from AIDS rapidly. And so from there, you know, from the late 80s onwards is when we see in the documents effectively an orchestrated government cover-up going to the highest levels, health secretaries, prime ministers, begins. And you can see why it would be unprecedented for a prime minister at that time to come out and say, dear nation, our negligence has killed between 1,000 and 2,000 people. No government wants that on their head. No political party or civil servant wants that on their head. And so it had gone on ever since then until 2017, really, when we got this public inquiry. But it's just unfortunate that in the meantime, you know, by 1996, the vast majority of those infected with hepatitis C and HIV were dead, including my father. There were originally just over 1,200 of those people infected with both viruses. And we, the estimates now suggest there are a little over 200 still left alive. So it's good we finally got the inquiry, but most of the people impacted by both of those viruses are, are dead. The story you're telling me is manifestly in the public interest. What resistance have you found to getting the facts, getting the evidence and putting it out there in the public domain? Really difficult. I think at first when 
it wasn't too apparent to either myself or civil servants quite what I was doing or the road I was on. FOIs, freedom of information requests, were complied with quite well. But very quickly as the month, certainly after a year or so of doing this, the shutters really, you know, began to close down. They would stop responding to FOIs. They would flat out ignore them. They would use exemptions, which they knew full well weren't valid. I'd then have to go to the information commissioner who more often than not would favor my argument and and get those overturned. This extends not just to the Department of Health, but also executive agencies like the MHRA. I've had problems with the Ministry of Justice, with the Cabinet Office. And of course, we now know the Cabinet Office are running this clearinghouse operation and circulating these uh, what they call round-robin lists of people's requests, of which I have found my name and my requests on these round-robin, what, what are being described as effectively, you know, blacklists of of journalists why i'm on those lists i have no idea all i know is i'm i'm on them so you see all this stuff and it it really makes you question what what the hell's going on and yes the resistance is is huge in in short i could really talk forever about it but it's it it's there's a huge resistance so your father dies because of an error to say the least, and you are seeking to find information relating to that error and the thousands of other people who died as a result of the same error, and you are being blocked, you are being stymied and proactively blocked as well by civil servants and by officialdom. Yeah, I mean, their their attitude is unbelievable when, when you think about the context of it. This is a son trying to find out how and why his father died. And we I've seen, you know, through the material I've obtained through FOI, how these civil servants view me and these requests. You know, in, in one email I'm referred to, uh, the exact quote in the email is, Jason Evans is a tricky stakeholder. And then, in you know, in, in other um, emails between the senior civil servants, they're talking about how they shouldn't release documents to me because the language might be unpalatable when viewed in today's context. And, you know, the way they approach this is absurd. And especially when at the heart of this issue, at the heart of the inquiry that's going on now, one of the fundamental things it's looking at is back in, you know, the 70s and 80s, was there transparency when it came to the risks and the dangers of these products that infected people? But we're still not getting transparency now, you know, in, in 2021. So, it, you know, arguably, not only was there a cover-up, you know, I would allege it's still going on now. And of course, I think part of that is because whilst elections happen, governments change, MPs come and go, these civil servants stay in post for 30 plus years. You know, they never change, no matter who's in government. So, they're still running the show. Jason Evans, the founder of Factor 8. So how widespread is the practice of obstructing journalists who are simply seeking to hold ministers to account? I brought together Byline Times investigative reporter Sam Bright, whose work to expose the PPE procurement scandal has been recognised in Parliament, 
and first, Mary Fitzgerald from Open Democracy. We've been using freedom of information in our journalism for many years, and we keep getting frustrated with every time we try and find anything out, there is a stonewall or a block on routine questions, things that we should be allowed to know under the Freedom of Information Act. And we discovered um, one of our reporters, Jenna Cordroy, who uses FOI a lot in her work, discovered that she was actually actively being discussed in Whitehall. So she got a disclosure which revealed that different departments were talking about her saying, oh, I'm just flagging this Freedom of Information request to you because Jenna Cordroy is a reporter for Open Democracy. That is against the spirit and the letter of the FOI Act. It's supposed to be applicant blind. Government is not supposed to be judging who you are when they judge whether or not to give you information. And we'd suspect this was going on for years. We know that journalists across the media have had similar experiences, similar very frustrating experiences, and members of the public have too, like Jason, who you just heard from. And we thought enough is enough. We, we have to make noise about this because if we don't defend this right, our fundamental right to access information, it'll be gone. And that is one of the pillars of our democracy is being able to hold our leaders and our government accountable. To do that, we have to know what they're up to. I know that another open democracy reporter, James Cusick, who has been a a parliamentary lobby journalist for years, has also been frustrated. Yeah, I mean, in his case, he's held a parliamentary lobby pass for decades. And he was told recently, uh, last year, when he was trying to ask questions during the daily COVID briefings, that he, he, was, he was not permitted to ask a question despite holding a lobby pass because he worked for Open Democracy. And Open Democracy, <laughs> according to number 10, is not an award-winning news outlet, as we are, but a campaigning organisation. They smear certain outlets who asked awkward questions with this label of campaigning organisation. They did it to the Mirror and to the Guardian when they had the temerity to ask why Dominic Cummings went to Barnard Castle. They refused to answer their questions for six weeks, calling them campaigning outlets. So I think a campaigning outlet now means any news organisation that asks questions that those in power don't want to answer. And that's very creepy if you think about that, the implications of that for press freedom and and for accountability in this country. Jim's reporting, you know, had raised issues about Children dying because they weren't reaching A&E in time, hospital logs, which revealed doctors' concerns over the COVID response, the legal liabilities that the government was going to face uh, face over the deaths of NHS workers. You know, these were absolutely critical public interest questions at the time. And the answer was, oh, no, we're not going to answer your questions because you're a campaigning outlet. And you've also discovered that at the heart of government, there is this so-called clearinghouse run in the cabinet office which assesses which freedom of information requests should be granted and which ones should be refused tell me what you know about that and how you discovered that yeah well again this is this was um partly jenna's experiences and this is something that uh, lots of journalists have suspected for years and the clearinghouse has been has has been operating for for some time far longer than um this current administration and yeah, they, they assess and advise other government departments on FOI requests and how to respond, which again, you know, this is something that David Davis, who's a Conservative MP, described as against the spirit of the act and probably the letter of the law as well. You know, it's supposed to be applicant blind, so they're not supposed to be judging who people are in the context of whether or not they release information. 
Michael Gove has also been incredibly misleading on this subject. He told a parliamentary committee that asked him questions about this that that our reporting on the on, on this clearinghouse was 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 wrong, and and he he in fact completely misled them. This is a unit we have evidence. This is a unit that is is screening FOI requests. One opposition MP called it blacklisting certain journalists and blocking the release of sensitive information. That is really really troubling for the practice of journalism in this country. For citizens who need to access information and, you know, for our democracy, our ability to hold leaders to account. That's a key part of our of our campaign and our ask is, is to get MPs to investigate fully the operation of this clearinghouse and to make reforms to ensure that this isn't getting in the way of our fundamental rights to access information. Sam, you've been uncovering details of the PPE procurement scandal at the heart of government following the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic. You haven't generally used freedom of information requests, but you have used publicly available government documents to get to the heart of what's happening. Have you found any resistance to that? Yeah, well, I'd say, first of all, thank goodness I don't have to use freedom of information requests on this because everything that Mary says is definitely chimed with my experience. I remember Recently, I got a Freedom of Information request back from a council that took 16 months to be returned. They're supposed to be returned in 20 working days. So on the PPE procurement side of things, despite not having used Freedom of Information requests, it's also been a challenge. So the National Audit Office released a report in November last year that detailed some of the problems that we'd been finding. So the government is supposed to release details of contracts it has awarded to private sector companies within 90 days. Now, the National Audit Office found that only 25% of the contracts that had been awarded up to the date of the release of their report had been released in that time frame. And often those contracts contain scant details. They, for example, haven't told us much about the cost per item of personal protective equipment or details of the cost of our test and trace system. So you have to do a great deal of digging off the back of that as well to find out anything else that the government might not be so keen to release. And these documents are by law placed into the public domain and they are meant to be placed there within a certain time frame. Is there any punishment, any penalty, if government departments don't put them in the public domain by the official time frame. No, no punishment whatsoever. I mean, over the past couple of days, I've seen um, contracts released onto the government portal that were actually signed in March 2020, so at the outset of the pandemic. And it shouldn't matter what cost is attached to these contracts, but it so happens to turn out that these are contracts worth tens of millions of pounds, probably racking up to a hundred million pounds worth of government deals. So a staggering amount of money that we just haven't been able to scrutinise until the past couple of days, despite the fact that they were signed by ministers months ago. The whole point, presumably, of forcing them to be placed in the public domain is that we as citizens, we as journalists can scrutinise them. So if they're, if they're being delayed being put into the public domain, then presumably that's frustrating the, the object of transparency in government, of us knowing what's going on. 
Absolutely. And what Mary says is absolutely right about the government trying to smear certain journalists as campaigners, which is actually deeply ironic. I mean, if listeners have Twitter and they can go to Peter Dukes's Twitter page, his pinned tweet shows on the night before Brexit, so 31st of January 2020, a large group of right-wing journalists met at a Mayfair hotel under the banner of the Brexit Media Corps to celebrate Britain's departure for the European from the European Union. And this contained journalists from The Telegraph and from Talk Radio, LBC, The Times, etc. And if that isn't an act of campaigning journalism, I don't know what is. Yet the government isn't so keen to smear those right-wing journalists who it might agree with politically. Mary, there is the Information Commissioner's Office, which is meant to arbitrate on disputes around freedom of information. How powerful have they been in your battles with government over FOI? Oh, God bless them. <laughs> they have no, no teeth, no funding, are completely overstretched. The ICO has definitely made some good decisions and they've upheld battles we've fought, but it just takes an inordinate amount of time. So by the time you fight these cases at, at the information tribunal, the information you seek is completely irrelevant. It's lost its news value, which means it can't hold power to account. The ICO have upheld some really critical decisions in our favour. For example, you know, we had to go all the way to, to court to challenge the government to release the taxpayer-funded research that the European Research Group had done on Brexit. This is something that we, the taxpayer, paid for. The ERG was this, um, as you remember, this intense pro-Brexit, hard-Brexit lobbying group of MPs. Um, and they were using, using taxpayer money to fund research about Brexit and then fought uh, tooth and nail to keep this research private. And in instances like that, we, we, we put in all the time and effort, many, many months, years to challenge the secrecy. And eventually it was upheld and they had to release the information. But it was, I think it took us nearly two years. And, and that's the problem. It's, it's time, resource, and also penalties. You know, there's a real problem with administrative silence, which is basically government departments or, or local authorities ignoring freedom of information requests. And there's very little that the ICO can do if they just re- ignore the request. There are very few penalties available. To take an example of this, the London Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, around the time of the Grenfell fire, just simply didn't respond to a, a large number of freedom of information requests. We can only speculate on, on what those would have, have shown, but a story that my colleague Peter Gagan released last week on Open Democracy showed the housing ministry at telling local authorities that it was okay to withhold information about which buildings still might have the dangerous cladding, similar to that that was used at Grenfell. In Grenfell, 72 people died in that horrific fire. And we have the housing ministry advising local authorities that it's okay to to block freedom of information requests, which could reveal which buildings are still a fire risk. Getting this critical information in a timely matter can be a matter of life and death, just as Jason's story showed how this is not a nerdy or wonky subject. It's, 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 a, it's a story of life and death. Mary Fitzgerald there, Editor-in-Chief of Open Democracy with the Byline Times' very own Sam Bright. And you can find a link to Open Democracy's campaign to save and strengthen freedom of information laws on our podcast homepage. We also asked the Cabinet Office for a response. 
and they referred us to comments made by Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove to the Commons in December when he said, The truth is the Cabinet Office does have a role in making sure that we apply consistency in our responses to FOI requests. But, he said, the idea that there is a secret clearinghouse or any sort of blacklist is not correct. And it is the case that when we look at all freedom of information requests, they are applicant blind. So whether it's a freelance journalist, someone working for an established title or a concerned citizen, all freedom of information requests are treated in exactly the same way. That's Michael Gove's view. As you've heard, many working journalists would beg to differ. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and if there's a story you think we should be covering on the Byline Times podcast or in the Byline Times, do get in touch. You can email goldbergradio at gmail.com. That's goldbergradio at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Byline Times. Thanks for listening. See you next week.